Glad you're here this morning. Um, glad the Hudgens are here with a new little baby. When when was Aiden born? 17th, which was what? Less than two weeks ago. Okay. Is this the first corporate worship for Aiden? Breathing air, anyway? Okay, good. Well, we're welcoming Aiden. Aiden Hudgens. Welcoming our guests, guests, visitors, folks who hadn't been here before. Let me share with you just real briefly what this is, what we're doing here. Uh, we have a perfectly good building right down the road. <clears throat> Lots of little rooms for kids, and we have a crew of folks that uh, help volunteer and take care of our children during corporate worship. So why are we doing this? Why sit on these especially luxurious benches? Um, why gather out of our element? Because we need to force ourselves out of our element sometimes. This sort of thing that we do once a month in the spring, through the spring months and the fall months, we do on purpose because we find that sometimes we can become too comfortable with the trappings of being at a building. We can become too comfortable with having a place to send our little kids. We can get in a place where we can only pay attention and listen if there's absolute silence, absolute darkness, just a light on that dude right up front. So we go out of our way to force ourselves out of our element. It's for our sake, and it's also for Greenville's sake, because we want to pick up and mobilize and move to different places in Greenville and enjoy Christ out loud. That's what we're doing. It's not a scheme. It's not some sort of strategy to do anything. It's just wanting to be the people of God out loud and enjoy Him geographically in different areas of our community. What we do each time we do this is we visit the neighborhoods surrounding wherever we're going to pick up and move, and we pass out flyers and let people know that we're going to be worshiping there corporately, and if they're not part of a church home, to come join us. So that's what we've done. Some of you may be a product of that door-to-door visit this week. We're glad you're here. <clears throat> now, for parents with little ones, relax. Relax, but don't relax too much. Relax in the aspect, in the direction that it's okay if your little one is fidgety, and making some noise. We can handle noise. I have people say to me all the time, man, how did that not bother you? I'm in the zone, man. I, phone's going off, bombs explode, not, whatever. It's on. So don't worry about me. I would encourage you parents, be okay with the fact that you're in a season where you have little ones that are going to be fidgety. And you might be thinking, man, why don't they have some child care? Why don't they give me a place to put my kid right now? Because they're not getting anything out of it. I want to present this notion to you, this idea that a little toddler who's sitting in somebody's lap right now, a little toddler, the toddler that's going to be restrained and wrestled for the next however many minutes, may not get much of the message, but they get that they're part of something. They're looking around at their mom and dad or their aunt and their uncle or their brother and their sister and they're looking at other people whose faces are familiar and they're seeing, I'm part of something here. And it's something that's a little message that's not a spoken message as much as just an identity message. So be okay with that. They'll get that message hopefully long before they start to get the spoken message. <clears throat> now those of you without kids, just you need to relax too. Either you had kids and you're like, oh, it's no big deal. Or you haven't had kids yet and you're like, man, I'll never let my kids act like that. 
pride cometh before a fall. <laughs> it's coming. So exhale. Um, now, when I, in, in regards to not relaxing too much, we don't need to have a circus in here. So if your kid is just being crazy unruly, be okay with slipping out and uh, restraining them if you need to. But don't be too worried about that. I realized when I walked in here that the message is going to have to be modified. It's not one of those mega messages like we have at the building, but it's also not one of those little micro messages either. So I'm just going to do the best I can to modify as we go. Uh, you need your Bible, so go ahead and turn your Bible to John chapter 15. <clears throat> I'm going to pray as you're turning and um, pray for focus and pray for uh, the little ones to uh, see that they're part of something. And I want to pray for GCS, too, while we're here geographically. Lord, we're thankful for this time that we have together in the Word this morning. We're thankful that the people of God get together. Uh, we're thankful for the use of this building. Lord, I want to pray uh, on behalf of this people that's gathering in this building for this school, Greenville Christian School. Lord, I'm burdened for this school that this school will enjoy the truth and not replace the church. I would expect that that's a burden of this school as well. A fear that something that has Jesus' name attached to it can so easily become the church, but this is not the church. Lord, I pray that this school will serve alongside and complementary to the church and the home, the family. Lord, whatever that looks like, whatever that means, we pray that you'll sort that out and work that out. We pray for the kids that are learning math and English and Bible in the doors of this building, Lord, we pray that they are more than anything learning to worship and enjoy you. Lord, I pray too that this school is pointing toward the church and encouraging children and families to love the people of God. Lord, we pray that your name will be enjoyed and you'll be glorified in and through the ministry of this school. Lord, in these next few minutes for this people, I pray for an attentiveness that is a uh, uh, Holy Spirit-fueled an engagement that I know is difficult, especially with little ones. But Lord, I pray that we can just press on and work through that and that we can hear your message this morning. I pray for little ones that they'll see that they're part of something this morning. We love you, Lord, and we turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're in the middle of a series of probably three messages on being hated by the world. We're in John chapter 15. So on the night before Christ is crucified, he's talking with his disciples who followed him for three years, <clears throat> and he's sharing with them that reality, they're going to be hated by the world. We're going to read the passage here in a moment, but I, I want to just kind of pull something out in the light. There's something about dragging something out in the light that you have a chance to kick it if it actually is something, or you might find that it isn't something. Whenever we're talking about being hated by the world, I feel a little element of kind of a conspiracy theorist. Whenever we're talking about being hated by the world, there's a possibility of coming off like we're suspicious of everyone and able to trust no one. Our phones are bugged, our cubicles are bugged. People are listening in next door to see if we mention the name of Jesus. The next cubicle over in every direction, we're being mocked. I know it's sort of ridiculous, and I want to call that out, that that's not what this is about. And the people of God should not operate and think that way. But we should let the world shape our worldview. 
We can also err in the other direction where we have no room for being hated. We can also err in that other direction where we think that our life is about being liked. Where everything that drives us is a desire to be liked by everybody. So this is going to liberate us from that and hopefully keep us from landing in the other extreme through exposing the word of being a bunch of conspiracy theorists. We need to be prepared for being hated by the world. Peter, a guy that would have heard these words in John chapter 15, said in the book of 1 Peter, don't turn there, just listen. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Imagine Peter writing a letter to you, a guy that walked with Christ for three years, a guy that heard these words on the eve of his crucifixion, a guy that saw Christ crucified, and he said, don't be surprised if something crazy or new is happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, i.e., through those sufferings. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed feel that? If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God now rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be surprised whenever somebody hates you or somebody spurns you, scorns you, slanders you. Instead, rejoice. Don't be ashamed and glorify, or our special word, enjoyify God. John chapter 15, let's go there, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. From that one paragraph, we can draw out these realities, not only for the disciples, but indirectly through them via believers in Christ for us, that we will are going to be hated for not being of this world, verse 19. We're going to be hated for being chosen out of the world, verse 19. We're going to be hated for being a servant of the master, verse 20. We're going to be hated on account of his name, verse 21. And like Christ, we too will be hated without a cause, verse 25. Man, that's bad news, isn't it? That's a hard sell for Christianity, isn't it? 
Anybody that's ever shared Christ with anybody, say, go through that list with somebody on the first meeting. Man, I got bad news for you. He can save you and deliver you from your sins. But guess what? You're going to be hated for not being of this world. You're going to be hated for not being chosen of this world, for being a servant of the master. You're going to be hated on account of his name. And you're going to be hated without cause. Oh, where do I sign up? Man, Christ is preparing these guys for what's in store. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do sort of a mid-conversation catalog of hatred. We're going to look at four different people in the Old Testament and one in the New. And they're going to be pretty brief snapshots. Some of them very brief. And I'm giving you a map because I want you to be able to hang in there and know that there is a finish line. And the finish line will be where we visit with our New Testament picture of one being hated. We're building visual references that will help us understand the dynamics and also let us know that we're in good company if you've ever been hated. First, let's start with Abel. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. It starts at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 4, page 3 of your Bible. I'm going to begin in verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. She'd just born Cain. And now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. Pay attention to the wording. An offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on the other hand, also brought the firstborn of his flock. Not the second, not the fifth, not the extra, but the firstborn. You have to wonder if he even knew if he was going to have any more. How many births have they even seen at this point? He brings his firstborn of his flock, maybe his only at that point, and of their fat portions. And the Lord regarded Abel and his offering. But Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain got the little sermonette from God and then promptly walked off into the field and murdered his brother. He spoke to his brother Abel, hey, Abe. Let's go into the field and hang out. And when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Man, first picture of being hated by the world. Abel brings his firstborn in the fat portions, contrasted with Cain who brings an offering. And right out of the shoot of humanity, right at the beginning, Abel is hated for being regarded He's hated for worshiping wholeheartedly, and he's hated, great example, being hated without a cause. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. I'm not going to read any of it, but you may have a visual in front of you. Maybe you've read through chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's the story of the flood account. Noah's the next man we're going to look at. I'm going to give you a synopsis of this four chapter, six, seven, eight, and nine account. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, and God let Noah in on the plans and gave him specific instructions for a way, listen, through the judgment. 
Not a way around it, but a way through the judgment, a wooden way, a way 300 cubits long, a way 50 cubits wide. And he christens this way with a covenant promise. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, their wives, and your wife, and then two of every kind, male and female. Noah did all that God commanded him in the 600 year of his life. It started to rain. All the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heavens were opened and it rained and it rained. A year later, he and his wife and three sons and their wives and two of every kind stepped out on dry, crunching land. If you've heard this story, likely you've heard this story a million times. I hope you've connected this story to the gospel. It is the gospel story. In light of Christ, Noah now comes into focus as an early type of Christ, a righteous man who survives judgment by following God's instructions perfectly. Hear that? And a remnant connected to Noah is preserved just by their connection to this man. And that remnant participates in the building of this mercy ship. And that remnant and this righteous man come out the other side on a recreated earth. That's what's in store for God's people. That's why we can connect to this story and see that it's also our story. Now let me tell you something, additional information about Noah. Information that's not in the account itself. Second Peter says, tells us that. Don't turn there, just listen. Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. You know how the story goes. As Noah's preaching that they're mocking and jeering, laughing. Chapter 2 of 2 Peter says that he is a herald of righteousness. And then in chapter 3 it gives us more details of what that time must have been like to equip us and prepare us for this time. It says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? In Noah's terms, they will say, where is the rain Where is this wet stuff you call rain? That's a laugh. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of this, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Not water this time, but what's coming and what's imminent is fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Man, I'm hearing that and I'm hearing Peter connect the dots there for the the, the way Noah was treated, the way he was scoffed to prepare the people of God. In Peter's time, however many thousand thousand years later, or being scoffed at as well, that prepares us here a couple thousand years later to be prepared to be scoffed at. 
Just like Noah, we too will be hated for preaching something that seems unlikely and ridiculous. Oh, okay, Christ is coming back in the sky on a cloud. Okay, show us the rain. I've never seen it. I've never felt it. We too, like Noah, like Peter, will be hated for calling others to be part of the work. We too, like Noah and Peter, will be hated for urging others to not build mansions in Babylon. That was Ezra and Nehemiah's message. Let's get ready to go home. Don't get too comfortable here in Babylon. We too, like Noah and Peter, will be hated for urging others to not get too comfortable in Egypt. Like Moses was hated for saying, let's go. We too will be hated as we preach and urgently and soberly present a message that says, not, let's not be spent on the perishable. Let's be spent on the imperishable. After Noah, there's a series of people. I don't, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to these guys. God tells Abram and then later Abraham, I'm going to build a new people through you. They're going to be numerous as the stars in the sand. And right off the bat, four generations, Sarah is hated by Hagar. Isaac is hated by Ishmael. Jacob is hated by Esau. And Joseph is hated by his brothers, probably for good reason. But then he's hated by Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison. Four generations of this early family, this early picture of this family who were hated, mocked, thrown into prison, and murdered. And then there's David who's hated by Saul. And then there's Daniel. Turn to Daniel chapter 6. <clears throat> I'll start the story, and as you get there, you can just pick up, starting in chapter 6, verse 1, on page 743. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or governors, the weird name, 120 of them, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then presidents and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel, hated for no reason with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Sound like Christ? Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. That'll be his Achilles heel, worship. Then these presents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. 
All the presidents of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Daniel, when he knew that the document had been signed, he was aware of exactly what took place. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He could have closed the windows. Did it ever occur to him? Just keep praying to your God and close the windows. You could be a little bit influenced by these people that are hating you, right? He didn't even close his windows. He gets down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God exactly as he had done previously. Daniel's hated for a couple of things. First of all, he's hated for having a spirit of excellence. I bet some of you who have a spirit of excellence about you and what you do can relate to this hatred. Hated for doing a good job. You know what it's like to work with a team of people where you're working as unto the Lord and you're putting everything into excellence and everybody else is just trying to get her done? You know what I'm talking about? People will give you names, a brown noser. They'll say you're gunning for promotion. You can guarantee that you'll be hated for this. Daniel mainly is hated for unwavering obedience, if you want to boil it down. He's hated for caring more about what God thought of him than what man thinks or thought of him. Listen to this passage in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, For I am, now, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. You hear that? If I were still, if I were influenced by a bunch of satraps and a den of lions, and even the king that I work for, to the point where I modified anything having to do with my God, I would not be a servant of of Christ. Being a servant of Christ means that you'll care more about what God thinks than what man thinks. And I guarantee you'll be hated for that. People love to know that they have power over other people. People love to know that they have the ability to influence other people. When you demonstrate what I would call horizontal indifference because you're focused on vertical worship, somebody's going to conspire against you. It's a matter of time. There's an upward orientation in Daniel that must have been infuriating to his workmates and peers. You need to know that will make some folks hate you when you are not influenced by what they think of you. The last person I want to look at in the Old Testament is really a group of people. Luke chapter 6 says this about this group of people. Listen. It says in verse 22 of Luke chapter 6, 
Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And the prophets were hating for, hated for speaking the truth. Men like Isaiah, men like Joel, Amos, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, all believed to have been martyred. I promise you this, if you make a clear statement about abortion, you will be hated. If you make a clear and absolute black and white statement about homosexuality, I promise you this, you will be hated by somebody. I think the only time in seven years that I've had somebody get in my face after a sermon was after the abortion sermon. It was a visitor. Got in my face and their chin was quivering, not because they were about to cry, but because they were so mad. Make a clear statement about these sort of issues, these clear and present issues, and I guarantee somebody will hate you. I saw in the news recently that a school, a Christian school in Texas, an Anglican school, said we will not accept this four-year-old under our roles because mommy has a, a, a wife. I saw this article on CNN, and then I just read a few of the responses. Do you ever do that? I saw the article about Anne Rice supposedly leaving the faith. I don't know that she was ever truly part of it. But the responses, hateful. I mean, venomous. Read them if you wonder if Christians are hated. Make a clear statement that the faithful Muslim will not inherit the kingdom of God, and you will be hated. Make a clear statement to a nice and good person that without the blood of Jesus and faith in Christ, you're doomed to eternity in hell. You may watch a nice and good person turn mad and mean. Make a clear statement that the faithful Jew will not spend eternity with Yahweh lest he or she worship Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Make a clear statement and consistent statement that the nicest and most sincere Mormon or Buddhist will not inherit eternal life. And somebody's going to get mad. Make a clear statement that Christ is your righteousness and explain what you mean. And somebody's going to get mad. The world likes a system of religion, the things that you can do, things that you can see, a dance that you can be part of, moves that you can make that somehow justify your faith. You present a gospel that says that you are saved absolutely and completely by the righteousness of another, and somebody's going to start getting hateful. And it may even be the supposed keepers of the truth. I say supposed. The world loves tolerance and hates absolutes. The world loves something you can do to earn your salvation. The world loves the quantifiable, the measurable, and the seen. And you'll be hated with the prophets if you preach a message and speak a message otherwise. That's a promise. Turn to John chapter 9. We're going to look at our New Testament picture. As you turn in there, I'll share another one with you, an intermediate. 
Hades, John the Baptist. He was hated by Herodias, Herod's sister-in-law. Hated to the point of getting his head cut off. John chapter 9, I think, is one of my favorites for different reasons. It's a little story, a true story that's meant a lot to me and my family because of our kids having visual impairment. It's a personal treasure to me, but not just because we have kids that are visually impaired, because it's a personal treasure to me, and it should be to this church, because it's the gospel story. Look for yourself in this blind man as I read this account in John chapter 9. As he passed by, that's Christ, he saw a man blind from birth. What do you think a blind man did in that day? They did what this dude was likely doing, begging. Got some money. I need to eat. There's no Helen Keller. There's no Braille. There's no seeing eye dogs. There's just a blind, helpless man that looks like you and me in the gospel. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You could say, because I'm going to show you what the gospel looks like. And I'm going to show Cross Point Fellowship 2,000 years later what the gospel looks like in this blind dude. Watch. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. God the Son is doing a recreative work. Man was made from the dust by our God. And God the Son here is with the dust and with his spit recreating sight, recreating man. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing physically. The neighbors and those who'd seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, nah, but he's like him. (laughs) What does that mean? He's just like him. Can't be him, though. He kept saying, no, no, I'm that same dude. I'm the man that was begging this morning at sunrise. I'm that same man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud. He did a recreative work and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I, I don't know. We might ask that question too as we're reading. Where'd Jesus go? He's going to come back into the story later at just the right time. So they bring this man to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not keep a Sabbath. Forget the fact that he just did a totally and completely, absolutely godlike thing and a recreative work and gave a blind man his sight. He did this work on the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. 
So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents totally throw him under the bus. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Just don't mess with us, please. We want to stay to ourselves, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. Leave us out of it. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Christ Jesus to be the Christ. He was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, leave us out of it. He's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I can see you. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, you know, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love this dude. He's greatness. And they reviled him. You hear it? They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and he does his his will, God listens to him. This formerly blind dude is preaching to the Pharisees. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. I guess as contrast with us, because we're Pharisees, we were born by some other way. But you, blind man, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Now, where's Jesus? Watch this. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Man, that is our story right there. Blind and begging, destitute, sought out by the living God, healed, testifying, and guess what? Part of the equation, hated, rejected, yet saved. It's a great picture of being hated by this world. Had he not been hated by the Pharisees and rejected by the synagogue and kicked out of the synagogue... He wouldn't have been outside the synagogue to be found by Christ. See the beauty of that? It's not just a detailed narrative of an event that happened. It has meaning. John shares this because it has deep meaning. It puts the gospel on display. It's through the hatred that you come to know Christ. It's not an obstacle to your faith. 
It's the escort to your faith. Jesus found him outside the synagogue, and he worshiped. There's plenty of other New Testament pictures. There's Lazarus, who's hated for being raised from the dead. You shouldn't be alive. I hate you. I'm going to plan and scheme to have you killed. That's what the Pharisees wanted to do. You're supposed to be dead. And then there's the New Testament believers. Man, Stephen hated while Saul is on the sideline, holding the cloaks, drinking haterade. New Testament believers, hated by Rome, hated by pagan craftsmen, hated by whoever could incite a crowd. There's James, the brother of Jesus. There's Antipas. There's Polycarp. There's Ignatius. There's Justin. There's Blandina. There's William Tyndale. There's Jim Elliott. There's Nate Saint. And then there's the quiet martyrs that we don't even know. People who are dying daily deaths in the workplace who are hated, who are shunned, who are persecuted, who are left out, who are avoided, who are scorned, who are slandered, who are spurned for Christ's sake. I hope you've experienced some of this. I hope you've had the privilege of experiencing what your master has experienced. Servant, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted Christ, they will also persecute you. The servants of God have experienced hate at the mean hands of the world since the beginning of time until now. So don't work so hard at being liked. Don't work so hard at everybody approving you. Don't be surprised thinking something strange has happened to you. If someone hates you for Christ's sake, instead rejoice, don't be ashamed, but enjoyify God. Let me pray. God, it's hard to say this is good news, but we're thankful that it's true news. Lord, we're thankful that it prepares us, not if we're hated, but when we're hated, that we can see some of the dynamics and understand that we're in good company. That in some ways we're making up the sufferings of Christ. That we are participating in His work. Not because it needed any sort of addition, but because we've been blessed with the sweet privilege of suffering with our Master. Lord, I pray these sort of messages that we're having last week, this week, and next week will in fact equip us so we won't be surprised, but that we can rejoice and we can celebrate at the revelation of Jesus Christ through it. Lord, I pray too that you will liberate us from being enslaved to being liked and cheered for by everyone. Lord, too, I pray that you will Hem us in on the other side so that we're not a bunch of self-righteous jerks, but that we give a sweet account for the hope within with gentleness and consistent respect. Lord, I pray that we'll be characterized as people that speak the truth plainly and lovingly. 
Pray these things this morning in Christ's precious name. Amen. Let's worship in song. Each week we take the Lord's Supper as a part of our worship service. And after a message like this especially, uh, you may be sitting there thinking, well, what um, if I'm not supposed to worry about what other people think and desire to be liked? What do I have? What do I take? What, what has he given me to hang on to? And this supper is what he has given and we take. I want you to listen to this passage in, um, in Mark. And as they were eating, Jesus and his disciples, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. Just as the bread is broken and it's given, his body was broken and given. Take, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the bread broken for us. Thank you for that body that we eat and for your blood that we drink. And it's my prayer that we would trust your body and your blood, your atonement, and not our feelings and not our experiences, but trust you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, first, first thing I have is just, um, I guess, praise for the kids. Man, y'all did pretty good. You really did. That was good. You did pretty good. I, I know that's different. I know that that's, um, man, I, I, you know, I know that's just kind of weird church to have kids all crawling around and making noise and stuff. But, you know, really, that's probably more like the New Testament church was than a lot of what we do now, age-graded stuff. I'm not one that believes that the, you know, the earliest is necessarily the best. Um, that's fallacy of the first or whatever you want to call it. But um, it is kind of cool if we've got kids crawling all around us and making noises to think, oh, maybe this was like a house church in Ephesus. You know, that's, that's neat. That's neat. So I know it's different, but don't, don't worry about different. Different's okay. And for those of you who wrestled for the last little while, great job. You did good. I know you're tired. You can get you some nourishment and get refilled. But let me encourage you too, this is a season. We've wrestled with ours. Christy wrestled by herself for the last seven years. We're just now getting to a season where we don't have to wrestle. And Daniel 7, he's starting to pay attention. Luke and Evan have been paying attention for a while. It's just sweet when you hit that season. You'll appreciate it. It's like being let out of Egypt. It's awesome. And then you will know that he is the Lord. Hang in there. Uh, one brief announcement. We're going to be back at Cross Point. Wednesday night at 6 p.m., resuming our fall uh, Bible studies for adults and kids. Now, youth are meeting at the Adele's house. You can jump online and see what that's, uh, get some information about where that is and what that looks like. Kids have all kinds of stuff going on. We're working, um, we're going to be studying Genesis. Uh, we're going to be working with catechism questions and engaging Scripture, memorizing Scripture, engaging truth and enjoying God together. Adults will be back in their Genesis study in the sanctuary, and that's at 6 p.m. on Wednesday nights. Uh, you can jump online and check out information on that. Y'all stand, and let me dismiss you. Let me encourage you, too, if you see an unfamiliar family, make the point to introduce yourself. If you are an unfamiliar family, and this is your first, of, first time or first of few times, you're sitting at the meal with a family. 
That's what we do on Sundays. We don't put on a production or a show. We gather as a people and we dine on God's Word together. So I hope that you've dined this morning. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to have you. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for the good Word, the good nourishment, the encouragement that it is. Thankful for the people of God. So blessed to walk with this people. So amazed by your grace, your wonder, and your mercy. Lord, we love Jesus together. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.